So this morning we're, to, we're going to be in Judges chapter 10, and the plan is to cover the first 16 verses, Judges chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. And if you're taking notes, the title of this sermon is The Kindness and the Severity of God. The Kindness and the Severity of God. So we've seen in Judges, most recently, the Lord's fiery judgment upon the lords of Shechem and Avimelech, the man who would be king. After this period comes a a time of judgeship by two relatively unknown judges by the name of Tola and Yair. Now in the book of Judges, if you recall the introduction, There are 12 judges that we read of, that we are given accounts of during this period in Israel's history. Six of these judges are called major judges, and six of them are called minor judges. Now, it's not that these minor judges are less important than the other guys. It's that the accounts of the minor judges are very short. They're very sparse in detail. So in that way, they are very much like the 12 minor prophets in our Old Testament. Those prophets are not unimportant. They have very important things to say, very important messianic prophecies. But because their books are very short, they're called the minor prophets as opposed to the major prophets with the larger, more lengthy book. So after the strife, the violence, and bloodshed of the first nine chapters of Judges, which we've waded through all of that, we see a peaceful respite during this time period of these, of these two judges. There's a semblance, if you will, of security and stability that seems to have been established in the land of Israel. Even though, you know, as we, if we pay attention closely, there's no mention of that important biblical term that God uses, his rest. There's nothing that says his rest has been bestowed upon the land. Rather, there's a peaceful interlude, I would say, following the reign of wicked Avimelech, son of Gideon. Of course, peaceful interludes do not lend themselves to tales of grand adventure. But the details that we do get in these very short accounts gives us important information. It tells us what's going on. And really, it tells us what the focus of the Israelites is at this this time period. But importantly, in these first few verses, these first five verses about these minor judges, there's no mention of Yahweh's involvement in any of this. In the affairs of Israel during these two judgeships, There's no mention of Israel's spiritual condition. There's no mention of them turning or turning away from Yahweh. There's no mention of of, of Yahweh rising up these judges, which is a mark of a judge, that 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 it's a man who Yahweh rises up, normally to fight an external threat. And, And the sign of God's anointing is the ability of one man to unite the tribes of Israel in a military force to counter the threat. But this doesn't go on 
with these two judges, Tola and Yair. How do they get to their positions? Well, it seems to be perhaps just solely human effort. Maybe it's their wealth or their reputation, their influence or family connections. But they're not raised up by Yahweh, according to the text. And as I said, neither do we find any mention of Israel's spiritual condition. But at least during this time period, there's no bloodshed. There's only the trappings of a peaceful and prosperous life. There is continuity and stability in Israel. The judge works and lives and dies and is buried. Then another judge arises and works and lives and dies and is buried. And such is the story of most lives, isn't it? Yet God is always at work even when he is ignored, even when he is not mentioned. So let's read the first two verses here in Judges chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Puah, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. Now this opening phrase here, after Avimelech there arose to save Israel, is unique amongst the accounts of the six minor judges. So that should always draw our attention when we see something that departs from what is normally said about something. This phrase, I would say, serves to bring into sharp focus the career of this minor judge, Tola, contrasting him to the bramble man we've been dealing with, Abimelech. We're told here that after the bloodthirsty Abimelech, Israel was in need of saving. Interestingly, Tola's name means worm, you know, like earthworm. And it's kind of odd, isn't it, to think of parents maybe their little boy, Worm. But it's not an unknown name in Israel. In fact, the namesake of Tola's tribe, Issachar, named his firstborn son Worm, or Tola. So worms are connected to the tribe of Issachar, we could say. But this image of a worm, I think, is important. Because it casts Tola as a lowly person, as a humble person, in contrast to Avimelech, whose name, you may recall, means my father is king. So we see a shift here in the leadership of Israel. And we're given you know, three high points of Tola's judgeship. First, that he arose to save Israel. And this combination of arising, to arise and to save, we find this in the accounts of important earlier judges like Otnel and Barak and Gideon, Ehud. But unlike these earlier judges that arose to save, again, there's no mention of Yahweh being the causation of this. And that's important. That's why I'm emphasizing it. And we read about no enemy here that um, Israel is in need of being delivered from. 
The fact is that Israel is in need of deliverance and in need of saving from the conditions that Avimelech had created in Israel. This reflects the seriousness of the chaos that Avimelech uh, brought to the land. Then we're told, secondly, that Tola ruled from his capital, um, Shemir, in Ephraim. And we don't know where the city is. It could be it is what later becomes known as Samaria, but we're not sure. But significantly, this first successor to Avimelech comes from the tribe just across the border from Shechem. Shechem, where the conspiracy to install Avimelech as king, as ruler, was hatched. And then lastly, and thirdly, he judged, Tola, judged Israel for 23 years. Now this is an odd number, but I think what what we can glean from that is there is significant historicity in this. This is not uh, a number that is symbolic or uh, um, is used... uh, in a general uh, term, so to speak. It's, it's telling us an, an exact number of years that Tola was the judge. And after his tenure was over, Tola is buried in his capital city. The simple details given of judges, of Tola's judgeship, like I said, is that he lived, governed, died, and was buried. And that sparse amount of detail suggests that this was an orderly and stable time in Israel, that Tola was able to bring them out of the chaos of Avimelech's reign and into a period of stability. Then in chapters 3 through 5, we move on already to the next judge. And after him rose Yair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel, 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havat Yair to this day, which are on the land of Gilead. And Yair died and was buried in Kaman. So Yair, the Gileadite, another minor judge, he precedes the next judge, who is a major judge, meaning there's a long account given of him, a judge by the name of Yiftah. This is a time of preparation for what is to come. This is a time that leads us into the idea of causation as to you know, the things that we're going to see in the reign of this next judge, which, we're, which is going to be in much detail. Interestingly, <clears throat> Considering what little we know, what we've gleaned from the text so far, is Yair's name means, may God enlighten. Hinting that even though peace and prosperity had been granted to Israel at this time, Israel was spiritually in the dark. They needed enlightenment. Now, Yair is from an area, a region called Gilead, which is in the Transjordan, which means it's east of the Jordan River. This is, this is the tribal allotment land given to Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. 
And the primary differences between these two judges, these two minor judges, Tola and Yair, are important. Tola had to face, like I said, the, the after effects of Abimelech's rampage. So his focus was on the present, how to make everything work again, how to put everything back together, how to stabilize a society suffering from shock and chaos. Tola thus prepares the way for Yair. Now Yair's judgeship then is marked by this peace and prosperity that Tola brought. He benefits from this. We can see this through some interesting small details, but they tell us a lot. We can see this through the mention of his sons, number one. Number two, donkeys. And number three, cities named after him. These Havat Yair, or towns of Yair. These are signs of prosperity. And they're connected to Yair. Through the use of some wordplay in Hebrew, which I think is really, is really wonderful, we often... You know, if we, if we dig deep enough, we can find this wordplay that the Hebrews were so adept at, and it really gives us insight into the message that they are delivering, that God has inspired them to write. So here's the wordplay. The name of the judge, Yair, number one. Then the sign of his wealth, donkey, Ayir. And the symbol of his prosperity, the prosperity of the land, city, ear. So we have Yair, Ayir, Ir. Now, if you're Hebrew and you're, you're hearing this in Hebrew, or you're reading it in Hebrew, you pick up on this right away. But in English, it's, um, it's obliterated. Um, but it's telling us something. So having these 30 sons, 30 donkeys, and 30 cities is a sign of prestige and wealth with a bountiful inheritance awaiting those to come. So Yair's judgeship then is focused on the future. Inheritance is future looking, setting up for what's to come, providing for our progeny, for our people. Each son inheriting a donkey. There's 30 sons and there's 30 donkeys. Now, even the word used here uh, the Hebrew word used here for donkey, a year, is meaningful. It means a donkey that you ride. It doesn't refer to a pack donkey, which is a hamor. So it's not a beast of burden. It's a means of transportation, befitting a man of wealth and property. Because extra-biblical writings of the ancient Near East depict owning and riding a donkey as a mark of prestige and royalty. We wouldn't think of that, would we? You know, donkeys don't seem like it's, they're, they're not like the, uh, you know, a, the Lincoln Navigator or whatever uh, of today. We don't think of them that way. But, the, but in the ancient Near East, the, the donkey riding man is considered urbane, cosmopolitan, a city dweller, as contrasted to the wild rural tribesmen on a horse. We would think of a horse as being more prestigious, but oddly it's not. So that's a mark there about how the culture views this. And all of this brings us to my first point, point number one, which is God's judgment does not mean the absence of God's grace. 
as we've seen, the Lord brought three years of judgment upon Israel with the reign of Avimelech for their sin, Israel's sin of apostasy. However, this time of judgment, those three bloody years of Avimelech, were followed by a period of stability, peace, and prosperity. The judgeships of Tola and Yair had a combined total of 45 years. This is a wonderful blessing that God has given Israel after three years of instability and violence. And we must realize that this grace and mercy was undeserved by Israel. The absence of the spiritual condition of Israel points us to that. There's no mention of any repentance of any sort by Israel after their judgment of Avimelech. In fact, there's no mention, as I said, of Yahweh at all. It is though Israel was completely secular and non-religious. It was like dealing with our culture where people don't even mention God unless they're being blasphemous usually. So what we see here is that God provides common grace to all people. Now what is common grace? I'm going to give you an easy definition of that. It's a theological term, of course, a phrase which describes God's bounty poured out on all men and women regardless of their faith or righteousness. And Louis Burkhoff, in his systematic theology, explains further, and I think he gives a very, very good definition and working, working um, uh, idea of common grace, because common grace can be and has been misunderstood. And what Burkhoff says is very important, and that is common grace does not pardon nor purify human nature. It's not salvific. That is, it does not provide salvation to sinners. And there are Christians who define common grace otherwise, that they do see it as providing saving grace, in a sense. But, Burkhoff continues, common grace does curb the destructive power of sin. And we're seeing this in Israel during this time period of these two judges. It maintains a measure of the moral order of the universe, thus making ordinary life an orderly life possible. And it distributes in varying degrees gifts and talents among people. The fact that that there are people amongst us that can do things that we need, that can perform work that is vital and necessary, is part of God's common grace. And common grace also promotes the development of art and science, things that make human culture thrive and flourish. And again, Burkhoff says, common grace showers untold blessings upon all people. And scripture attests to common grace. There are many instances of it. Jesus spoke of common grace during the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5.45, we read, Our Lord says, For God the Father makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And Paul and Barnabas, when they were in Greece, they testified to the Greeks at Lystra about common grace that God has blessed them with. They told these 
Greeks, yet God did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So this time of peace and prosperity of Tola and Yair really, though, was a double-edged sword for Israel. Though the accounts of these two judges ends on a relatively peaceful note, all is not well in Israel. The downward slippage of Israel has become more severe. The Israelites have all but fully absorbed the pagan culture of the Canaanites. And as we will see in the accounts of the major judges to come, Israel is at the edge of the cliff. And they're going to take that leap into the abyss. And while peace and prosperity, of course, are generally desirous, who does not want peace and prosperity? We pray for that. And we give thanks when we have that. And that is well and good. But peace and prosperity can be detrimental when a nation is surrounded by threats, as Israel is. Yair's 30 pampered sons will be of little use when the next invasion comes. See, rulership in the ancient world was different than rulership today. Our leaders today are under no compunction to go forward into battle if we are in a state of war. Our leaders don't do that, nor do they even send their children. They'll send your children. They'll send my children. But in the ancient world, the leadership was expected to lead into battle. Well, you've got these 30 guys on donkeys that have led pampered lives and they each have a city to rule. They're not fighting men. They're not prepared for that. They've not, they've not faced really any difficulties. And that's, that's the problem with peace and prosperity. You can say that it makes people soft. And it does. And that's a double-edged sword. What we're going to see is that the people of Gilead will search desperately for a fighter to save them when an external threat manifests itself. And they will find this fighter in the judge, Yephtah, who has little else to recommend him but the ability to fight. Let me illustrate this idea of peace and prosperity. I'm going to refer to um, a marvelous book that um, Pastor Mike has recommended to Pastor Steve and I I'm reading through it, and I'm almost finished with it. It's, it's, the name of it is The Excellent Benjamin Keach. Now, Benjamin Keach was one of our early particular Baptist forefathers in 1600s, early 1700s England. Primarily London is, is where he preached. And it's interesting reading what people, men and women, Christians, like us, very much like us, went through during times of persecution. Keach tells of a time period that he calls the times of the ten hot persecutions. Now, at this time, the throne of England had turned against many of the Christians in the land. If you were not of the Church of England, you were persecuted. The persecution involved imprisonment. It involved pastors being forced out of 
their churches by the king's troops. Keach was arrested twice for preaching the gospel. Once he was pilloried, he was put in the stocks. And what did he do as his head and his hands were locked in these wooden stocks? He preached the gospel. Boy, did that infuriate the sheriff. The sheriff had him gagged. Keach preached the gospel through the gag. So the, 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 the interesting thing is that Keach talks about the unity and the strength that were in the true Christian churches. This time lasted about 30 years. And like all persecutions, there was an ebb and a flow. It wasn't constant, and it wasn't everywhere. Just like the Roman persecutions of the early church. Very, very much like that. But there came a time when the tyrants who were on the throne were thrown out by what the British call the Glorious Revolution. And King William and Queen Mary came over from the Netherlands and were on the throne and they were good evangelical Christians. They believed in the freedom of religion, the freedom of conscience. So the time of persecution was over. And in this book, the author, Austin Walker, writes that Keach was persuaded that the England of his day was a very favored Nation, and indeed it was. It was privileged to hear many gospel preachers and sermons. Think of these men that we hear of today, whose books we read, to learn and glean from. They were preaching, they were alive, you could hear them. And if you couldn't go to them, you could buy their sermons for a tuppet, you know, just for a, a little brass coin. It was wonderful. Yet Keach felt that so many of those sermons seemed ineffective in bringing their hearers to repentance, like a sword that had lost its cutting edge. Does that sound familiar? It sounds much like the United States, doesn't it? This is interesting. When we go through the Bible, we go through church history, we see the same things that we're experiencing. And we can learn from that. We can train from that. We can prepare from that. We should not ignore that. And by the time of the 1689 London Assembly of Particular Baptists, most of you know, but not everyone knows, Particular Baptists is what Reformed Baptists were called back in the day. These were considered by the British as nonconformists. That is, they were outside of the Church of England. And like I said, they'd been delivered from persecution, so they gathered an assembly, and they lamented the present condition of their churches now that they were in a time of peace and prosperity. Writing, quote, fearing that much of that former strength, life, and vigor which attended is much gone, end quote. So this mood was reflected in a general epistle that was sent out from the 1689 assembly and signed by 32 elders and messengers of the particular Baptist churches in England. And it was a trumpet call to the churches to rouse them from their ease and call them to reformation. Wait a minute, these are Reformed Baptists. The Reformation had already occurred. 
right? And they're being called the Reformation. Always reforming, right? Semper reformata. We should always be reforming. Deep concerns were expressed by Keach and these other pastors for the lack of zeal for God's house. Keach said this was directly resulted in the loss of the power of godliness amongst the Christians. So peace and prosperity had softened the churches, which had been tempered in the hot fire of persecution. And we Christians in this nation have yet really to face persecution. Yes, we've experienced inconvenience in the last few years, haven't we? And yes, we've experienced illegal government overreach in the government's attempts to control and curtail worship and freedom of expression of one's own conscience. Yet, with this relatively short and not too hot inconvenience that we've faced, this has caused some to depart from the church. The effects of peace and prosperity, which we've experienced for most of our lives, and which Israel had under Tola and Yair, remember 45 years of peace and prosperity. Many of you here, 45 years would be beyond the amount of time you've lived. So there are many of your age at that time who this is all they've known is the peace and prosperity like you've known. But this peace and prosperity can affect people in ways that are somewhat unexpected. When one takes the worship of the Lord God for granted, then it becomes something that's fairly fairly easy to surrender. If it didn't mean much to you in the first place, then it is of little concern if it disappears. After the 45 years of peace and prosperity, Israel's relationship with Yahweh had become so insignificant that it is not even mentioned. I can think in my relatively short life, (laughs) and I'm sure many of you can, many times where presidents have called for a national day of prayer because of difficulties that we face, because of things that have happened in the world. Now, maybe I've missed it, but you don't hear that much anymore, do you? To be even-handed with Israel, though, neither is there mention of them worshiping the Baals and the Astaroth, which are the gods of the Canaanite, uh, Canaanites. These gods were the perpetual snare of Israel. But think about this. Worshiping really is integral to human beings, whether it is realized or not by people. Since we are made in the image and likeness of our Creator, we have this innate urge to worship something greater than ourselves. So after these five brief verses regarding these minor judges, Tola and Yair, we come to the events that pave the way for the next major judge, Yephthah. And none of these things are good. And they serve to bring foreign oppression as judgment from God. We're going to read on now, verses 6 through 16. I'm going to break this up a bit to make uh, observations as we go along. Here we see in verse 6, 
the opening verse. The people of Israel again did, was, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So this opening phrase here in verse 6 should be familiar to us by now in what is it, it is expressing. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of the Canaanites. But now that's not all. Seven different pantheons of gods are mentioned, which are now the object of the Israelite worship. They worship every god of every nation that surrounds them. Syria, called Aram in the text here, and Sidon are to the, their north. Moab and Ammon to the east and the Philistines to the southwest. The extent and gravity of Israel's waywardness is monumental. They turn to any and every god other than Yahweh, the one true God. Israel's no longer just in a downward spiral. They plunged headlong into pagan darkness. And notice how quickly we see this happen in the text. We go from peace and prosperity, no mention of Yahweh or, or Israel's involvement with their God, into they are running around wild with every God they can find with a little g. Verse 7 and 8. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed probably better here than oppressed, which is from the English standard. They crushed and shattered the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they shattered all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. Peace and prosperity is taken away. And in its place, there's crushing and there's shattering. What a change. Here what we see is the severity of God in his retribution for Israel's severe unfaithfulness. Double oppression by the Philistines and the Ammonites. Israel's worshiping of these foreign gods didn't make these foreign nations any more friendly towards Israel because even though they're worshiping the same demon deities, they invade Gilead, they crushed and shattered the Israelites. And this, this term, this verb shattered, occurs only one other time in the Old Testament. Only one other time in all of these Hebrew scriptures. In Exodus 15.6, where it describes what Yahweh did to the Egyptian enemy. Yahweh shattered the Egyptians. Now the Israelites, who had been rescued out of Egypt, are being shattered by these pagan worshipers. Verse 9, And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. The Ammonites not only crushed the tribes in the Transjordan, they even charged across the Jordan River attacking the southwestern tribes of Israel. So Israel is in a desperate situation here. 
brings me to my second point. So-called freedom from the one true God leads to crushing slavery to sin. So-called freedom from the one true God leads to crushing slavery to sin. The cry to cast off the shackles of religion has been heard throughout history. And each time, that religion that the intellectuals or the barbarians demand to be cast off is what? It's Christianity. We don't hear of the need to cast off any of man's religions that he's dreamt up on his own. From Rousseau and Voltaire in the Enlightenment to Marx and Lenin in communism to Nietzsche with nihilism to today with basically deconstructionalism that we see in uh, BLM and Antifa and and, and transgenderism. Our, Our society, our culture is being attacked at all ends by people who want to take it apart. They want to disassemble. They want to deconstruct. And they want to put it together in the way they think it'll fit. And no matter what we call it, whether it's enlightenment, communism, nihilism, or this deconstructionalism, the stated guide, the stated goal, is always, finally, we're going to bring true freedom to people. Never happens. True freedom is never brought to anyone. The result is always despair, destruction, death, and ultimately damnation. Israel went seven ways to Sunday in a frenzy of spiritual adultery, chasing after every god that was available to them. Instead of freedom and fulfillment, they were crushed and shattered. Turned out not to be such a good thing. Verse 10 tells us, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and have served the Baals. So now Israel, crushed and shattered, is so desperate that they cry out to Yahweh, to the Lord God. They include some sort of confession of sin. This, this, this verb, to cry out, frequently people assume it indicates repentance. However, there's a study of this, this Hebrew verb, it's za'ak, and this verb, there's over 60 instances of it. 60, 6 zero, in the Old Testament. It's only connected to repentance of sin in all 60 usages when that is expressly stated by an additional clause or a second verb. By itself, za'ek just means to cry out to anyone in general for help. Not, not to cry out to the Lord. So Israel is cried out for help, to be rescued. I like what Dale Ralph Davis says in his commentary on Judges. It's the same song, 16th verse. Israel kind of, sort of, maybe, admits her sin, but minimizes it. Yes, they admit we have forsaken our God, notice, our. So they're trying to claim the blessing of the covenant, our God. Yahweh is our God. 
Remember, we have a blessing. While ignoring the curses that are in the covenant. And they admit to having served the Baals. But they minimize that, don't they? Actually, their unfaithfulness is not just with one God, but with seven pantheons of gods. Now, the number seven, as we know, signifies completeness, right? So we're seeing complete unfaithfulness on the part of Israel here. Think of this illustration. Israel is like a serial adulteress having abandoned her husband and then returning to her husband only after being battered and abused by her lover. Except this time, not just one lover, she ran off with seven lovers. And she comes back to her husband and she thinks if she reminds her husband of their marriage covenant by saying, you are my spouse, not these seven other men, then he cannot refuse, right? Yeah, sure, honey, come on, come on, come on back in. Verses 11 through 14, we must hear the Lord's severity here in these verses. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, and from the Amorites, and from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines, the Sidonians, also the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand, yet you have forsaken me, and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. So Israel had run off with seven other gods, and in desperation, wants her covenant relationship with Yahweh to save her. Yahweh reminds Israel that he saved her before, not just once, But in the text, Yahweh reminds them he has saved Israel seven times. Now you've just heard that number seven before. Seven times of salvation in past deliverances matching the seven present betrayals. So for each of these new pantheons that Israel lusted after of these pagan gods, Yahweh is saying, I saved you already once. Okay, we'll match these up, we'll match these up, we'll match these up. Yahweh is betrayed yet another time by Israel after each of these rescues. This is an age-old problem. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we call this uh, foxhole religion. It's a theology that's common to many, many people. That God stands ready to save you no matter what. When your sin and situation become humanly irresolvable, then call on God. Because this really is the sum duty and responsibility of God, some people think. Just to be on standby, kind of like a fire brigade, you know, and just like the fire brigade, when you're not in need of rescue, he's snoozing or waxing his ski boat or whatever firemen do. Just kidding. As a former police officer, I can make fun of firemen. That's one of our privileges. These are people who otherwise never gave God a thought. The foxhole believer. Somehow people get it in their heads that God is incredibly naive. 
and hopelessly soft, and he exists only to pull our fat out of the fire without expecting or deserving anything in return. All you have to do is make some empty promises to God, like you've done in the past, and he will, in fact, he must, grant the relief that you crave, because that's his job, right? Otherwise, what good is God? If I can't go out and do whatever I want, get myself in a pickle, and then cry out to God to come save me from that pickle so I can get in the pickle again, what use is he to me and to the world? Isn't that the theology of many people that we encounter? And it has been. I mean, we're looking at the ancient Israelites. That's what they were thinking. Apparently, these people including Israel, ancient Israel, think God isn't sharp enough to catch on to the con that's being played here, that he can be fooled. Now the Lord must destroy these false images that we, that people, have of him. Israel assumed that whenever things became too bad, she could always go back to Yahweh, just like that poor spouse whose other half, is engaging in adultery again. That spouse that's always there, ready to take the adulterer back. But now, Yahweh says that Israel cannot come back. Realize this. This is an important point that I want to make here. There is a difference between a prodigal who comes to his senses and returns home in repentance and an adulterer who pleads for her husband's security until she finds someone new to run off with again. We must realize that important difference. Because there is mercy, there is forgiveness. It's very important. But we can't trick God into it. Israel now must awake to her peril. The Lord God is saying that she's on the edge of becoming an abandoned people becoming one of those people groups we read about in the Bible that no one knows about anymore. Well, what were the Israelites? I don't know. They kind of hung out with these other groups we don't know anything about. But that didn't happen, did it? So, there's, so we know there's hope. But here's the thing. There is deserved tragedy in people becoming so accustomed to the mercy of God that they expect it and demand it. Here's the clincher. When you expect and demand mercy, you demonstrate that you actually mock and despise God's mercy, while at the same time seeking it. And God, we know, is not to be mocked. And there are many people who don't like hearing this type of thing. They agree with the current celebrity preacher who I won't name, who who preaches that Christians should unhitch from the old... Testament. This is, this is a, a form of the heresy of Marcionism that the ch- early church dealt with in the second century, where you know, this guy Marcion decided, um, hey, I really like the New Testament stuff. I really like Paul's stuff. You know, some of these Jewish gospel writers, I don't care for them that much. They're talking too much about this Old Testament, Yahweh, who is a lesser God. And we're going to unhitch from that, and we're just going to be you know, dealing with the New Testament. Um, God. So this is an ancient heresy that's going on. And these people, even though they have this 
mistake in their head about, about the Bible and the depiction of God, they, they might agree that in the Old Testament people did stand under dire threat of placing themselves beyond God's grace. Sure, you can't deny that, but they'll say threats like that no longer apply since Jesus' death and resurrection. Well, Jesus' death and resurrection did change everything for us. Yes, yes, indeed it did. But it did not change God. God remained the same. Let me tell you about this guy in the book of Acts. New Testament book, right? Chapter 8, there's this fellow by the name of Simon. Simon of Samaria. He was a New Testament Christian. At least he had believed in Christ and he was baptized Simon loved to go around with Philip the Evangelist and hang out in the ministry, you know, take part in that. Simon thought Christianity was all about fun and profit, especially profit. And he recognized that the Holy Spirit was very marketable. We got people doing that today. But Peter, the chief apostle, rebukes him. He says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. You are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Sin, deep sin. Christians must beware of the tendency to make God safe. When we do so, we end up worshiping something other than the Holy One of Israel. We have seen Yahweh's threat, his severity in the text. Now we must see his heart, his kindness. That is there too. And those two are never separated. In verses 15 through 16, we read, And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now this last, the last verse there in the ESV, I don't think it's translated very well where it says, God became impatient over the misery of Israel. Um, The NRSV, I think, puts it much better. The NRSV says, he could no longer bear to see Israel suffer. That is the heart of God. But we must be really careful here, lest we take this ending, verse 16b, as the result of verse 15, where Israel, you know, we, we shouldn't say... Um, Once Israel really repented, then God relented. Yes, we're told they put away their foreign gods, and and we think this shows how sincere they were. And this sincerity is what moved God to compassion. That's what we're in danger of misinterpreting. But there's two problems here. First, Israel's previous cryings out to God may very well have involved putting away foreign gods. So it's not as though Israel hasn't done that in the past. Rather, that on each previous occasion, after deliverance had been granted by God, Israel had abandoned Yahweh again for these gods, time and time again. Secondly, problem with that interpretation of, the, of, of sincere repentance driving God is that this, this verse, the ending of verse 16 It does not tie the Lord's compassion to Israel's repentance. Instead, it ties Yahweh's compassion to Israel's suffering. It's the heart of God there. 
This brings me to my last point, point number three. Repentance may be a condition, but not a cause of God's restored favor. Repentance may be a condition, but not a cause of God's restored favor. Basically, our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance. If it did, how well would we fare? But in the greatness, our hope is in the greatness and immensity of our Lord's compassion. Isaiah tells us that in his people's affliction, he is afflicted. The Lord cannot long stand to see his his people, even his sinful people, crushed. So there's a seeming tension in Scripture between judgment and grace, which extends really to the character of God himself. For the Lord is a God whose holiness demands that he judge his people, yet whose compassion moves him to spare his people. So we've seen both the severity and the kindness of God in this short section we've looked at today. And lest we think that the Old Testament is only about the severity of God, like many mistakenly think today, think again on verse 16b, the end of verse 16. And he could no longer bear to see Israel suffer. That's the Lord God showing you his heart. And don't forget where he showed it to you. In the Old Testament. In the book of Judges, a book about sin, rebellion, and apostasy is where we have this marvelous lesson about the grace of God. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we heartily give thanks for your mercy, for your compassion, for the heart that you have for us, Father. Even though we stumble and we fall, And we do things that disappoint us ourselves, Father. And we wish not to do anything disappointing. We wish to do nothing that sullies or detracts from the name of our wonderful God, our Father, the Son, our Savior, and the Holy Spirit who empowers us. Father, may this lesson be written on our hearts, may it be engraved there, that we, that we not forget it. May we be a compassionate people, that we may reflect your compassion, Father, but that we also may be holy as you have called us to be holy, knowing full well, Father, that you, our triune God, is the one who gives us the ability to be holy that of our own we could do it for a short time, but we would fall, we would stumble, we would go chasing after seven pantheons of pagan deities, just like Israel did. Father, help us to understand. Father, bless your beloved here today. Father, may those who hear this, who hear your word preached, that do not know Jesus Christ as their son, may, may you use this word, Father, as you will, to awaken those who are still asleep as to their need of salvation. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.